once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. You think you have debt problems? The servant in Matthew owes his master about 54 million denarii, which is Jesus speak for more money than Bill Gates. No way he'll ever repay, but the debt is forgiven, keeping his family from slavery. How would you respond to that kind of generosity? Lead teacher Randy Pope brings us part four of the series, Loving Generously, which covers Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, We've been looking at Luke 10. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, as most of you would know that title. Uh, It's the story of a lawyer who comes up to Jesus, and the lawyer asks Jesus, trying to trap him, but says, all right, what does it take to get into heaven? What's the requirement? Assuming that he is going to say, oh, you have to follow me, and then he'd get him by saying, you're not committed to the law. Instead, Jesus turned it around and said, well, what do you say is required to get into heaven? And the lawyer responds, and he says, well, you better love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you better love your neighbor as yourself, as he's just quoting God's word. And Jesus says, I'm with you. That's exactly the right answer. That's had to shock this lawyer. Now, the lawyer is a theological lawyer, not a civil lawyer. So he knew the law of God, the law of Moses, and he says, hmm, you're right. He's thinking that Jesus is going to say, just follow me, but he doesn't. He says, I agree with you. You've got to keep the law. And from there, he is going to roll into what is known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, most of you know the, the parable. If, if not, without reading it now, just let me explain it. It's, it's uh, this traveler is going along, gets beaten and robbed, and then next thing you know, here comes a, a Jewish priest, and then here comes a Jewish uh, uh, Levite who comes by who is, uh, you know, the highest order of, of the Jewish folks and the best of the Jewish people, the people of God, and they pass right by, and then here comes a Samaritan. A Samaritan is a is a half-blood, as they would call him, and uh, half-Jew, and despised by Jewish people. And, and Jesus uses the parable to make a point, and here is the point that I don't want to miss in teaching you. The point is not to teach a parable about, hey, you need to help people just like they helped people. And that's how most of us read the parable. Oh, yeah, I need to help people too. I need to stop on the road. I need to take care of people. I need to work. It's a truth. There's nothing wrong with that reality. But that's not why Jesus was giving the text, and you can never take the text out of context. If so, you've got a pretext, and that's wrong. The bigger teaching that Jesus is trying to get across by telling the story is to say to this lawyer, you have not yet understood. The reality is you can't keep the law. And by showing the story of a Samaritan who is lower in his own opinion, the lawyer's opinion, than himself, he's saying, you couldn't even do what that Samaritan did. You would not have done that. How in the world are you going to think that you could ever love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, and so forth, all the time? How could you ever think that you could love your neighbor as yourself? all of your neighbors, all of the time, in the same way that you love yourself, it'll never happen. The text ended that we went over for the last three weeks. It ended with the lawyer or the text before the, the, the 
uh, getting into the parable, he, he actually says the very words as he asks, who is my neighbor? It says, seeking to justify himself. And the whole point was, this lawyer thought he could love enough. And Jesus is saying, you can't. Now, you must, but you can't. And therefore, the teaching of God's Word is to make a bigger point. It's not what must we do. It's who must we become. There's the teaching of the text. Now, Let's review very quickly the first three. You have them all in your outline. There were five truths we're going over through the series, and this is week four. But let's look, first of all, the practice of loving generously is one of two conditions required for eternal life. And so the two conditions being love your God and love your neighbor. Now, he's going to focus on love your neighbor from this point on. Number two, the essence of loving generously is to love one's neighbor as oneself. Now, this is a type of love that loves when it is not a desirable thing to love. It's us coming to the point that we would make deep sacrifice, as in the Samaritan story, to do that which could hurt our reputation. Think about it, high schoolers. Think about the person in your class who is unloved by everybody else in the class Everybody looks down. They're on the lowest rung of the totem pole of popularity, and they're alone. You know that they are lonely. You know they got to be hurting, and you're fairly popular. What would it mean to your reputation if you were to sit down at lunch with that person and start befriending and loving them, which would make their day, their month, their year, but could hurt your reputation? Well, there's an act of mercy. That person has nothing to give back. And so the reality is that we do have to understand the essence is to love as we would love ourselves, and that's something that we do not do. Not even the lawyer could meet the demands of the Good Samaritan. Number three, the recipient. The rightful recipient of generous love is anyone who is legitimately worthy of mercy. We talked about, well, who is legitimately worthy of mercy? And the answer was anybody who has a need. Anybody who has a need. Now, that led to a broader discussion. If you weren't here, this might be something you'd like to go back and podcast because I, I think it's a... It's, it's stuff that's not being talked about enough. First of all, we try to make a distinction. What is the difference between mercy and kindness? And mercy is giving people what they do not deserve. You can be kind without showing mercy. When you show mercy, you are being kind. But to think, well, I'm a kind person. Well, a lot of us, and I said last week, this place is full of kind people. But who are we kind to? We're kind to people that, that deserve our kindness because they've been good friends to us. Look at them in their time of desperation and need. How can I not come to your side and help you? And after all, it makes me feel good to help you because you're an important person in my life. That's, that's a very positive thing for me. As opposed to mercy, which when you show mercy, you're giving people what they do not deserve 
They've not earned it by being a good friend. Maybe they've been your enemy. They haven't earned it by building a reputation that can spill over to you to be a very popular thing and a good thing to be close to you. It's not at all. It's, this is somebody who has nothing to give back in return. And let me tell you, Jesus talked a whole lot about mercy and very little in comparison about kindness. As important as kindness is, it is a fruit of the Spirit. We don't downplay it. But Jesus came along saying, mercy, mercy, mercy. And many of us think of ourselves as merciful people where in reality we're just kind people. And so the teaching here is, all right, we need to be merciful. Now, with that, we had to make a distinction between being kind and merciful and becoming an enabler. This hit home with a lot of people, apparently. Because so many of us as spouses are enabling our spouse by assuming responsibility God never intended us to keep because our other half is not keeping the responsibility. Well, we don't want them to go through the pain and the heartache of it not being done and so forth. And we come in and next thing you know, we're enabling them. We talked about how parents went through specifics, how parents enable children. We're in a culture today where parents without thought are enabling kids. We talked about the ways we do that. Friends enable friends. And the truth of it is, most people who are enablers are very compassionate people. And it is a good thing to be compassionate. And in our hearts, we feel good that we are showing compassion. But the reality is, to enable is not a compassionate action. And so we tried to make the distinction between being a compassionate person and doing a compassionate action. We don't want to be enablers. We do want to be kind. We do want to be merciful. And so the recipient, oh, man, all of a sudden the door is opened wide to all the people in need around us. we got to give them what they need, even if they don't deserve it. They don't need to be enabled, but they may need help that we can offer. We have to make the distinction. Now today, we come to number four in our outline. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to have you go ahead and turn to Matthew 18. I'll take a minute before we get there, but uh, it won't take us long once we do, but let's, let's get ready for it by looking at this fourth important truth we look at today. That is, one cannot generously love others until first being loved generously. This is a very, very critical teaching. It's somewhat basic, but not thought about much. We can't love until we have been loved enough. I'm going to make two statements. I'm going to put them up on the, the screen because I think they're that important that we kind of fix on them for a moment. I'll leave it up just long enough if anybody wants to jot the essence of this down. Uh, but the first is this, to generously love requires a love that man is incapable of demonstrating. You need to hear that. What Jesus is teaching in the text that we've been looking at for three weeks, in Luke 10, the whole idea is he's just teaching this point right here. He's saying, hey, lawyer, you can't love generously. You're incapable of doing it, and I'll prove it to you because you can't even love like the Samaritan. Don't you try to build a case in your own mind that you can love enough and that you are loving enough. You haven't come close. None of us come close. We can't. That is the critical teaching. 
In fact, the reality is we can't love enough until we can admit that we cannot love enough. Do you hear that? We cannot love enough until we will admit and believe and hold on to the reality that I cannot love enough. This lawyer, he wanted to feel good that he was loving enough. And Jesus had to shatter that perspective. And that's what he was doing. He wasn't saying, go out there and love more. He's saying, you need to understand you can't. You don't even have the capacity to do that. Or put it this way, you can't really be the good neighbor until the eternal good neighbor, the good shepherd himself, is your neighbor, is my neighbor. In other words, there's got to be something that he is going to do to us before we can do what we're supposed to do. See, I'll tell you this, most teaching of the Bible today has become so moralistic that we're so common to read the Bible now through moralistic eyes. And if you keep looking, sometimes it's saying something really different than it appears to be saying because we've got on these glasses that, that see things differently and we see Scripture through the lens of what am I supposed to do? So much of Scripture, though there's certainly a lot to do, but the heart of the Scripture is constantly pointing out what we must become, who we must be, because it is in becoming who we must be that we can do what God wants us to do. We never throw the do away. We should be doers of the Word. But the focus has to be on being in order that we can do. Seeker, that's our big trap we fall into and, and fail to see the true faith because we keep thinking, if I'll just go to church and have the right religion and be religious enough and be moral to that religion and follow the morals that are taught and do that enough, then certainly I'm okay with God. And it, there couldn't be anything further than the truth. You can't be. So the whole idea of, you know, Jesus could have said, how do you get into heaven? He could have said rightly, follow me. He could use the word believe in me. He could say trust. The epistles are going to use those terms all the time to describe how a person becomes a Christian. But what he's got to get across is this, that you've got a bigger problem that you've got to admit that you cannot love enough. The second statement, let me put it up. Generous love requires a love that comes to man only after a life-transforming encounter with the eternal good shepherd. It takes this following Jesus, as we would say. What is this life-transforming encounter? We could call it, well, it's following Jesus. Is it following Jesus? Well, yes, kind of, if you understand what that means. Following Jesus doesn't mean just following what Jesus says to do and doing what Jesus says. It's not just that. It really is more understood by being represented by Jesus. That's the way I like to think of it. It's when we get represented by Jesus that all of a sudden his righteousness becomes attributed to us. And what happens is two things take place. Note these two. First thing is we've got a new motivation. All of a sudden I realize that God has done this for me and he's put me in his family and it's not based on anything I've done wow, why would I not want to do that for someone else? But don't forget the second half of it, and that is, yes, new motivation, natural motivation, 
but there has to be a supernatural empowering. And so when we become represented by Jesus, we become a follower, we become a Christian, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit that is power to the ability to now love generously. So we're not doing it out of the flesh, out of our human effort alone. We're doing it empowered by what God has done in our lives. In a sense, we work out of our lives what he works into our lives. Do you follow that? You've got to keep that straight. There's not enough people thinking about what God has done for us. There's not enough thinking about what God has empowered us to enable us to do. Well, we think about what I need to do for other people and how hard can I try and do it. And then we get so frustrated because we're back to a moralistic world in which we're just trying to perform like the world performs with the same power they have, which is none except willpower that won't take us far enough. And we've got that wonderful motivation to see what he's done for us. Why would we not want to do that for others? So that takes us to our text today. I'm going to tell the story in the vernacular. I'm going to put it today in today's terms. I'm going to tell it as if it were told by Jesus, you know, a little differently, but making the same point, and I think you'll get it. Then we'll read it from Scripture. Hopefully it comes alive. Imagine the vice president of a company. Vice president of the company has been embezzling money for years. He's finally caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Now it's known. He's done it. He's, he's embezzled over a million dollars and spent most of it already. When he gets caught, he realizes his best efforts to pay it back, but he knows he can't. He knows there is no means to pay it back. There's no job opportunity even on the horizon, not after what he's done. There is no possibility. And so at the last, with nothing else to hope for, he finally says, all I can do now, I've got to just go plead before my boss. I've got to go and admit and beg for mercy and he falls down before his boss and he pleads for mercy and he says there's no reason you should do this I don't have any argument to make I'm guilty I'm wrong and I cannot pay back would you please forgive me and the boss says forgiven forgiven now he's not going to stop the story there number five very 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 critical and when you see the movie that ends part five, you're going to want to be here. And I know many people travel next weekend, so we're going to put a pause on the series and we'll close out the series the following week. But when we come to, to the, the story here about uh, what Jesus is teaching, he's making a point that is so critically important now. He's saying, hey, here is what I'm saying thus far. There's more coming but thus far, I'm saying here is the story of how you and I have to be forgiven by God. We have to come to that place where we can say, we have no means outside of your mercy, God. Let's read it from Matthew 18, beginning verse 21 through 27. It says, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, which is saying unlimited. It's another way of saying you just keep forgiving. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owned him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had. 
and repayment be made. made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him, forgave him the debt. I tell the story because in the story of a slave, this, that, and the other, we may lose the point, but the big point is simply this. He had no means, he had no no argument to say, "I'm, I'm right. And so he pleads for mercy, and God says, that's what you do If you want to be my follower, if you want to be represented by me, then you come and you plead for mercy. People say, well, how do I, I want to know the Lord. I'm not sure I know him. I'm trying. I say, you know what I'd do if I were you? I'd read the scriptures and just keep reading it. Read the gospels. And then I'd just plead and say, God, show mercy on me, a sinner. See if something changes in your heart. I'll say that to you, seeker. Do that. You go home, just read the scriptures, read them, read it a little bit every day or night, and just say, God, have mercy on me. Because the reality is, it's, it's we have to be represented by him. He has to call us into his family. And when we do, we get the righteousness of Jesus attributed to us. As much so as the sin of what's called the first Adam is attributed to all mankind and just as real as we cannot work enough goodness to earn to be in the family of God, over here, it doesn't matter how much we sin, 70 times 7, God still forgives us. Why? Because we're covered with the righteousness of Jesus. And so you have the story of David, King David, as one of God's. What does he do? He commits adultery. He, he murders Uriah. Why is that put in Scripture? To show us that when you're given the love of God, it has nothing to do with merit. It is, are you covered by him? But when you are represented by him and forgiven, then something happens. I heard this years ago as a young Christian. The real mark of a true Christian is not how little he or she sins as much as how they respond to the reality of the knowledge that they have sinned. So, you know, the parable is not going to stop at this point. We're going to come back to point number five. Number five reads like this. After being generously loved, one can't help but to generously love others. What's it saying? Well, there's going to be a transformation. If you truly have been loved, you've received the pardon that God has given, then you can't help but disperse that mercy to others and to forgive others and to pardon others. If you're here, well, we'll talk about it when we come to number five. I don't want to jump into it too early, but it's a critical text because the reality is there's got to be evidence that comes out of the reality of being forgiven. And that's why he continues with the text that'll come following where we stopped just now. And you know the story, most of you, that slave gets forgiven and then finds a lesser who owes him far less, and he's not willing to forgive. And what does the owner do? The owner finds out about it and says, you're not one of mine. Get out of here. And God's saying, boy, there's going to be evidence. There should be true evidence. See, the law is never dismissed after salvation. The law, love your God with all your heart. The law, love your neighbor as yourself. It's just as real for us now. It's just as important. It's just now 
We've got a new ability, a new desire to do just that. And we still will never, never do it as we should. But we are represented by Jesus, therefore forgiven 70 times 7. He will always forgive us. So you've been messing up? You feel bad about your life and how you've been selfish and how you've been this and how you've been that? I do. I told Carol this morning. I said, you know what? I'm struggling to love. I I told her, I said, you know I am, and I am. I'm I'm struggling to love. And and I've got to go preach on this. I've got to tell other people how important it is to do what I'm struggling to do. How can I get up here and preach? I'll tell you how. It's like you can get up and stand up and go out in life and, and say, I'm okay because you're represented by Christ. You hate your sin and you're seeking to see it dealt with. That's how you deal with it. So, Christian, if you're bad because you're not loving well and you watch something like the videos that we're going to be seeing now and the closeout and you see a real acts of love, generous love, and think, I may not be there. Well, you'll get there. You're represented by Jesus and you're forgiven for not being there. But keep moving on, little bit by little bit. That's the good news of the gospel. Before we pray, I'd like to read a quote. It's a quote that I just think is, is one of the greatest truths of, of comfort and reality. It's, it's by a man deceased now, Jack Miller, great theologian and a great uh, pastor. Jack Miller said, you'll never know the mercy of God until you discover the great truth. And here's the truth. That we are far more wicked than we ever dared to believe. If you don't believe that, I don't know you'll ever find the mercy of God. You just got to believe, yeah, I must be as wicked as I can imagine because I can't dare to imagine how wicked I really am. But he doesn't stop there. He says, yet far more loved than we ever dared to hope. Well, you're loved, Christian. You got mess in your life? Sure. But love is far bigger. Keep that in mind. You'll be okay. In fact, once we come to the place that we can admit that we have an incomprehensible debt, that the debt is so big there's no means to reduce it, that there's going to be a moral audit, and the only way I'm going to make it through the audit is the mercy of God. Only then we know true forgiveness. And listen how it's described. In Jeremiah 31, he will remember our sins no more. Isaiah 1, our sin becomes as white as snow. Psalm 103, I'll remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. Now, if that's not good news... There's no such thing as good news. Let's pray together. Father, we, we want to know that we are generous lovers, and we can't know that until we know we're generously loved of you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show us your love. May we see it. May we understand it as we've never seen it or known it before. May we find our minds kind of running back to the truth of what happened on Calvary's cross. Pray that we would be mindful of the power of your spirit that lives within us and not try to live in the power of the flesh, but to appropriate your power to do the things that are hard for us to do, such as loving those that are hard to love.
I pray, Father, that you would grant us to find you if we've never known you. And for some of us now, we would say to you, maybe for the first time, Lord, I throw myself at your mercy. Please forgive me. I pray that you would work such a work in our hearts that the evidence of loving generously would be the very thing that would convince us that we're your children. So thank you. We're grateful, and we love you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go to the, um, to the screens, and you're going to see the fourth installment of five of a film called Loving Generously. Again, as I keep saying each week, this is, hope you, you feel great, the fact that this has come out of your church. These are your members that have actually created this film and uh, being used now all over and will be for a long time, as you can imagine. But uh, I know if you've come in new, you're going, uh, boy, I'm coming in part four. I don't know what happened previously. Uh, if you're like some of us here who have seen it and then forget what happened before, here is previously on Loving Generously. Over the past three weeks, we've watched as Frank and Cassie Donovan host a banquet for a local soup kitchen, help to rescue a young woman from her past street life, and open their guest home for her to live until her wedding, all while managing to get their neighbors upset over a yard sale and by the fact that they tend to keep company with those whom are less fortunate. Let's give our gifts, and then we'll give our attention to this portion, which is called Called. Places, people, places. T minus 24 hours. This wedding may be hasty, but it's not going to be sloppy. Ray, you're going to stand right over here. Sounds so beautiful. <laughs> Excuse me. Frank, Cassie. Can I have a word, please? We tried knocking. Sorry about that. Getting ready for this wedding has been crazy. We're all running around. <laughs> so, what can we do for you? Wedding? Yeah, for some friends of ours. Uh, they were at the banquet a few weeks ago. I think it was the one that you left early from. Frank, let me cut to the chase. We've received a number of complaints at the Homeowners Association about the yard sale last week. Complaints? From whom? That's not important. What is important is that we have a responsibility to ensure a reasonable expectation of security in our community. We live in a gated community. It's gated for a reason. I'm sorry, was there something unsafe about a yard sale? The financial investment that you guys have made down at the soup kitchen is wonderful. And we're all for helping those folks down there find work. We just don't know if it was a good idea to hire them to work at your yard sale. I mean, did you do any background checks? They're not our employees, Mark. They're our friends. We're just all concerned for you. That's all. Um, listen, were you and Eddie arrested last week for solicitation? <clears throat> some kind of trouble with the neighborhood? I don't know. I know there was kind of a big stink about those people at the yard sale. What people? The homeless people. They're not homeless. They're really nice, actually. Well, whoever they are, my parents were all, the Donovans are acting weird lately. We don't want you going over there without asking us. 
That's stupid. Is it? I mean, doesn't it freak you out just a little? You've got this girl living with you who people are saying used to be a professional. And you've got all these homeless people or whatever coming to your house. It's kind of weird. For now, this is just an informal warning. But if you insist on continuing to put our community at risk, we'll be forced to consider probationary status. Probationary status? Mark and Marianne, you're on board with this? We've been friends since our kids were in diapers. <laughs> Frank, none of us expects it to come to that. We just want things the way they were. And then everything will be fine. And by the way, an event of this size has to be approved by the HOA at least a month in advance. We have to confer over things like security, parking, street access. You come to our Christmas party every year. We host five times as many people as will be at this wedding. And you've never once told us that we need to discuss this with the HOA. I'm sure you won't have trouble finding some place to move it. Otherwise, we're going to have to call the police. Thomas, is something wrong? Oh, look at you! Breathtaking. <laughs> Thank you. Thomas, she looks so beautiful. Can you describe her for me? Thomas, it is bad luck for the groom to see the bride in her gown before the wedding. <laughs> is everything okay? Yeah. It should... Could you give us a second, Dolores? Excuse me, can I have everyone's attention? I never knew you could grow so close to people so quickly. We want to thank you all. We are so extremely grateful for everyone around this table and I can think of nothing better than to share our wedding with you. But we've decided we should postpone the wedding. What? Postpone? What? What? What's going on? Cassie and Frank, Megan and Evan, you have all invited us into your homes and into your lives, and we can't ask you to sacrifice your friendships as well. Thomas overheard your conversation with the Homeowners Association. We think it's wonderful that you still want to do this for us anyway, but we can't ask you to do that. It's not fair to you. We can wait a little while anyway. We've enjoyed a pretty good standing in this community for as long as we've been here. And we're thankful for that. But not at the expense of living the way that God has called us to live. When he says that the world will hate us because he has chosen us out of the world, I really don't get that. And I don't want to be hated by anyone. 
especially friends like Mork, Marianne, and Allison. But if they hate us because we share our lives with you clowns, <laughs> well, I'm all right with that. We got you a gift. Oh, you did not need to get us anything. We didn't, exactly. What is it? It's a 12A. A 12 what? It's for the door of the guest house. When we offered you that space, we thought you'd be with us longer. And although we're happy that you have a good reason for moving out, we'll miss you. So as a family, we decided to keep that space available for anyone that might need it in the future. And in your memory, we have decided to christen it Unit 1-2-A. 1-2-A-Nava. Be devoted one to another in love. Outdo one another in showing honor. <laughs> we thought that uh, we'd make it sort of our unofficial motto. It's perfect. <laughs> How about a toast then? Thomas and Julia, and to outdoing one another and showing honor. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> I think that could easily be named instead of called, maybe cost. There's a cost to following, isn't there? And, you know, not to, to put any assignment to anyone, but to, to just generally say, what if we as a people at Perimeter Church were to this week just be mindful and thoughtful and ask the Lord, God, show me somebody in some way that I could show love one to another. And do it maybe in the smallest expression. Maybe it's going to lead some to a larger expression. Maybe it's going to take some of us who have empty rooms to say it's available. I, I don't know what it'll mean to how God will call and use us, but I can imagine God touching each of us in little ways and collectively making a major impact around us. Remember when you do, it's not because this is what I have to do for God to love me. It's because you understand the love of God for you, and it makes you say, how can I not want to extend that same love to others? And where there's an opportunity to step beyond just kindness and move into mercy, let's think about that. And let's be on guard. We do not want to enable people, but we want to love them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have now to walk out of this place and be your representatives to love others. Show us how and what that means. May we do it, not just the right things that we do, but do it for the right reason. 
because of your love for us. And we thank you for all in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.